This is U.S. Army. Closer look. I think the job is pretty awesome. Innovating. Insight. Soldiers. Soldiers. Mission. Closer look. Closer look. Those who were there. Uh, and what we need to make sure is we have the most capable army to deliver specific effects on a battlefield relative to U.S. national security interests. Those experiences, those strategies. Closer look. Closer look. Army Media. On September 11th, 1970, a lone Special Forces medic was serving with a company-sized exploitation force consisting of Americans, Vietnamese, and indigenous paramilitary Montagnard personnel that was inserted 70 kilometers inside enemy-controlled territory. Chavain Laos, Operation Tailwind. This is part one of an exclusive interview with Medal of Honor recipient, retired Captain Gary Michael Rose. I was raised in an environment that if you, if you agreed to do something basically on a handshake, which from my perspective, that's if you agreed to do it, uh, the way I guess my moral code is, if I agreed to do it, I agreed to do it, so I'm going to do it, uh, regardless of the consequences. And, and, I, and I mean that in the sense that nothing illegal or, you know, because it, it, you, you, you have an obligation to do it because you said you'd do it. So not only obligation to do it, but to do it the best that you know how or can possibly do. Well, it's the way I was raised. Uh, you, you, if you, I don't care what you're doing. If you're cutting the grass or you're uh, uh, doing homework or you're doing, uh, if you're painting or if you're, if you got to clean up a trash heap, you, you know, you do, you try to do the best you can within the, the resources that you have. And that's how I was raised. And that's how I think. And, and uh, Miss Margaret thinks the same way that uh, you, 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 you have a commitment to yourself before anybody else. And, and that's the, what I was taught, that you, you have to do, think of yourself first. And the reason for that is if you don't think of yourself first, and that means get the education you need, uh, learn what you need to learn, and uh, you behave in a certain manner. If you don't do that, you can't help anybody else because you don't have the, the training, the knowledge, and skills to help anybody else. So one, that's why you always think of yourself first in the vein that I'm doing that because I need to be able to help my, my family, my neighbor, my, my neighborhood, and my community. And if I can't be the best I can be, then I can't do the best I can for my community as a whole. 50 years later, it would be nice to say that's how I thought, but I can tell you I was a 22-year-old, 20, 19-to-20-something-year-old kid. And let's be honest, you don't think that way. I mean, that, a 19-year-old does absolutely does not think that way. I think subconsciously maybe, but consciously, no. I, 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 mean, I mean, it was, I was enjoying myself. It was a good time. It was... Um, you're learning stuff, you're doing stuff that I never thought I'd be doing. So uh, in that vein, no, I was not thinking in reference to what you uh, 
I mean, I'm being honest. I mean, when you're that age, what are you thinking about? <laughs> Girls and, and other stuff of that nature and, and having fun, right? I mean, let's be honest. You're a, you're a teenager, for God's right. sakes. I think the reality hit me the first time I was loaded with my weapon, uh, my medical supplies, and I went in on a my first operation in uh, June of uh, 1970. Yeah, the reality hits you is when you, 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 you get all your stuff, you're getting ready and you, you get it all ready. And then, well, we, we would get on the helicopter's ride to Docto, which was our launch point into our target areas. It wasn't, I think when it hit me was when we were at Docto, which is our launch point, which meant it's a go, mission a go. You know, you hear those kind of things and you're getting on the, you're getting assigned to the helicopter, you're gonna ride into the, <laughs> the wild west, as you might wanna put it, in this case, the wild southeast. Um, that's when it hit me that, holy whatever, what have I gotten myself into? But once you get on the helicopter and you head, you know, and, and you're a newbie. It's like my father said in World War II when he was, my father made several landings in assaults with the Marine Corps. He was at Guadalcanal and Mundi and Okinawa. And, and he said, he asked me one day, he said, before I'd gone overseas, he said, do you know how you could tell the veterans from the new guys? I said, no, I said, the new guys, you're kind of looking around, seeing what's going on, you know, you're looking around, you're, you know, the veterans are over there shaking. <laughs> you hardly can keep hold of their rifle because they've been there before and they know what's about to happen. Well, on my first ride in, uh, that June of 1970, I was somewhat like that. And my father proved to be true because you're looking through, you know, looking at the terrain, you're looking around and you're, you're, you're just, you know, like you're on a, one of those uh, helicopter rides on tourists like in Hawaii or something, but it wasn't Hawaii. And, and then you hit the ground and then you make contact. And the bullets fly and the rockets come in and the mortars come in and you, uh, and then all that training that you've had for a couple years kicks in and you don't think about it anymore. When you think about it from everybody that I served with, it wasn't during what when the chaos was going on, but when you get back, that's when you, you know, you have the you get the sick to the stomach and the shakes and the stuff. But it passes. And then it's your job, you know, and then you go back to the dispensary or whatever you're you're you you know, you you do on a daily basis and that's what you do. You you know, if you you train your mountain yards or you hold sick call as the medics did. We would go to the, into the, we would go with the platoons in the, when they were training the mountain yards, you know, cause they have to, you have to have medical support. You know that you, you know, you, you always have medics when you go to the field, uh, training areas, there's always a medics there in case something goes wrong. It's, it's just a safety precaution. And then you just go through the day until you get called up and says, we got another mission and you're going on it. Okay. 
and then you get ready. And then the second time I knew more, you know, by then you're quote, to use the term veteran, you, you've seen the elephant dance, as they used to say. It, the second time it's a little more scarier because you, you, you've seen the results of what mortars and rockets and men getting hit with a bullet can do. I, I don't, I think at that point in time, it, it, it's like the old story is that you train, you train, you train, you train, you train, you train. And you, the first person goes down that needs help. Well, you're, that's what you've been trained to do. And you just go there. And uh, I can truthfully say that talking to other people, that's basically what they say. You, your training kicks in and you go there. You know, in this case, when the, when you go to a wounded, you, as a medic, you're trained to assess. First off, you 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 want to figure out or get a general idea of what's wrong with the individual, where he's hit, and then from there you you take the appropriate uh, action to. As I said early in an interview, you you um, your your job is not to repair anything. Your job is to ensure that the person survives to be put on the helicopter so they can get to a facility that has proper skilled physicians and nurses and that can begin to repair the damage done. Your job is to maintain the person's life. Uh, that's to keep them out of shock, to stop them from bleeding, and, and, and also as much as possible prevent any infection if you could. And, but we all know when you get hit, you know, depending upon where you get hit and how you get hit and what you fall in, sometimes infection's a little difficult thing to do, prevent. But it all goes back to training. And that's why I keep saying, you know, uh, you just got to train, train, and train. And it, and it doesn't matter when you're training to go into combat, it doesn't matter what rank you are and how long you've been in the Army. You constantly have to train. You have to keep this stuff fresh in your mind constantly. I mean, that's the way the instructors I had in Special Forces training. Uh, we trained all the time. We did. We would do simulated training for, you know, sucking chest wounds, uh, whatever. Uh, large wounds to the, you know, the, the thighs or the head. You constantly train and train and train to do that to be prepared to take action to mitigate the damage as much as possible. When you think back afterwards, it's just in, in you, and you, you, uh, for example, the first mountain yard that I worked on that got hurt on the first mission in June of 70. Well, we got him out and he got proper medical care and he was back to duty. And you get, you look at that and you, you have a sense that, geez, that was, that's a cool. Guy was badly hurt and, and I had something to do with, you know, getting him home. That, that compassion that you're talking about doesn't happen in the midst of chaos of battle. That compassion you have is, it, it happens when 
the danger of combat is over with. If, if you withdraw the person to safety, you're, you're still talking to them. You're doing things like, you know, when I say you're talking about preventing shock, well, one of the things you, talk, you do when you're trying to prevent somebody from shock, there's mechanical things to do, but you've got to talk to the person. You've got to convince them that they're going to be fine. And you, and you distract their mind by talking about other things, even in the, in the chaos of battle, because that's one of the things you've got to do is to make sure that that person who knows they're badly hurt has got a mental state that they're convinced they're going to be okay as soon as we get them back, to, you know, that we're going to get up, we're going to get you out of here, and we're going to get you back to the the hospital, and you're going to be fine, and you're going home. That's part of that, where I guess where you're asking where the compassion comes in, is when you're when you're dealing with them at that level. If the person is unconscious, you know, there's you're, you're worried. You are worried about them not making it. I mean, I'm not saying you're not worried about it. And then sometimes afterwards and sometimes before when you're thinking about getting going in, you're worried that you're you're not going to have the skills or you're not going to be able you're not going to remember something that you should have remembered maybe would have lessened their injury or or something to that effect. That happens too. But I I guess I answered it mechanically in the sense that I was describing what you do. But you can't divorce the, the compassion because you understand what something, you know, you live with these people, you, these men, you, you eat breakfast with them, you eat dinner with them, you know, uh, they read you parts of letters from home, uh, you play basketball with them or you, you, you know, you, you play pool or you, you sit there in the club and have a drink with them or, uh, or play cards with them. So. There, it's not like you're you're not compassionate about them, but you're worried about their well-being. Uh, but you can't. You've got to be. You've got to be somewhat mechanical in the chaos of battle. You have to be. It, it otherwise, because you, you're concentrating on the wound. You're not trans, at that point. You're not concentrating on the whole person. That comes unless you have to because you're worried about shock or something like that, or that comes later. But initially it's, it's you're worried about the wound. And, and I can tell you this much. If one of them doesn't make it, uh, I, I can, you can, you can be rational about the fact and you think you've done everything in your power to do it, but you always second guess yourself if somebody doesn't make it. And if, and if you've known the person for some time and if they don't make it, trust me, there is a piece of you that is hurting. It, it's, it's, it's tough to lose somebody that you care about, you know. Especially with somebody that you've gone in and done something like that with. I, get, I think the term you guys use, I call them the guys, but I think the term you guys use today is what, battle buddies? I can tell you a funny story about that. Uh, 
a certain colonel said that to me last week. And when I heard, I didn't hear battle buddies because years ago they used to think called a bed buddy and it was a bag full of like navy beans and you put it in the microwave and you heated it up and you put it like around your neck or on your back. <laughs> she said battle buddies. I thought that's what she was talking about. That's just a side thing. <laughs> Sorry about that. Closer look. Closer look. Listen to part two of Closer Look's exclusive interview with Medal of Honor recipient, retired Captain Gary Michael Rose. This is U.S. Army. Closer look. I think the job is pretty awesome. Innovating. Insight. Soldiers. Soldiers. Mission. Closer look. Closer look. Those who were there. Uh, and what we need to make sure is we have the most capable army to deliver specific effects on a battlefield relative to U.S. national security interests. Those experiences. Those strategies. Closer look. Closer look. Army Media. 